Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another Lost Ladies of Lit, the podcast dedicated to dusting off forgotten women writers. I'm Kim Askew. And I'm Amy Helms. And it's just us today, guys. Yeah, it's a rare full-length episode with no guests. But don't worry, we have plenty more amazing scholars and writers and journalists joining us in the weeks and months to come. But the book we're discussing today, it kind of made me a little wary of strangers. (laughs) Right, no joke, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We'll explain that in a minute. But suffice to say, Dorothy B. Hughes' crime noir novel, The Expendable Man, is a psychological thriller that will have you on the edge of your seat and maybe even questioning your own instincts. Yes, it's an incredible whodunit, and it has an unusual twist. But rest assured, we don't want to give anything away in this episode, so we're going to be purposefully vague when discussing parts of this novel. That's right. We want to preserve your own personal experience of reading this book. We think that's really important. But because the pivotal twist Kim just mentioned is so ripe for discussion, we're kind of chomping at the bit to talk about it, actually. There will be a point at the very end of the episode when we'll give you an opportunity to hit stop on this recording. And if you want to hear more, you are welcome to continue listening, or maybe you go read the book and then return for that final part of the discussion. Right. Um, We're going to maintain an air of mystery on this podcast, and it's fitting for this book. So let's read the stacks and get started. So in addition to being a literary critic and historian, today's featured author, Dorothy B. Hughes, wrote 14 crime and detective novels, many in the noir style that, Kim, I know you love. Yes. um, If you tell me it's a noir, I'm pretty much going to read it. I absolutely love noir, both book and film. And I've never really been into it as much. That sort of macho, gritty, hard-boiled stuff, it's not my thing usually. Even mysteries in general, I usually have to be kind of cajoled into reading most of them. I know, which is interesting because you're actually into true crime. So that kind of surprises me that you're not into mysteries so much. It's that whole kind of, you know, um, filthy bum, keep the change of filthy animal, like... (laughs) It's too macho for me. I don't know. Um, But I was interested in reading today's book because, A, you recommended it, but then also because I'm not as used to noir crime novels written by women. So that definitely intrigued me. This book was published in 1963. And while, of course, today there are a lot of women crime and detective novelists, it's not as easy to name classic women noir writers the same way we talk about, you know, Dashiell Hammett or Raymond Chandler. Yeah, that's true. And it's actually kind of surprising that Dorothy B. Hughes isn't a household name, or at least listed alongside those names, because three of her best-known novels were adapted into Hollywood films. One of them starred Humphrey Bogart, famously. I mean, come on, we're going to talk about that later. Um, But yeah, she deserves to be right up there with them. What do we actually know about Dorothy B. Hughes? Dorothy B. Hughes was born Dorothy Bell Flanagan in Kansas City, Missouri in 1904. Her mother's maiden name was Callahan, so she sounds pretty solidly of Irish descent. We couldn't find much about her early years growing up in Missouri, other than the fact that she knew from a very young age that she wanted to be a writer. She received a journalism degree from the University of Missouri and then took some graduate coursework at Columbia University. Her first published book was actually a book of poetry called Dark Certainty, which sounds noir also, um, and it won the prestigious Yale Younger Poets Prize in 1931. 
She worked as a journalist and eventually found herself in Albuquerque, New Mexico, taking more graduate classes at the University of New Mexico. Around this time, in 1932, she married a man named Levi Allen Hughes, who was the son of a prominent Santa Fe businessman. They moved into a pretty impressive residence with a tennis court that took up almost an entire block. Her marriage actually seems to have been a happy one. Yeah, and then in 1939, Hughes wrote a nonfiction book that was about the history of the University of New Mexico. But meanwhile, she'd given birth to three children, a son and two daughters, by the time her first novel, was called The So Blue Marble, was published in 1940. And then over the course of the next seven years, she published 11 crime thriller noir-styled books, several of which feature Santa Fe as the backdrop. She was able to just churn them out, and it seems like the public ate them up. Yeah, wow. To be writing this prolifically with three small children, um, you wonder how she did that. I mean, even if she was living a somewhat privileged lifestyle, and it sounds like she was, that's still really impressive. Apparently, she would write at night after all the kids were in bed, which is relatable. Yeah, I wonder if she sent them to bed at 4 p.m. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I actually found a 2016 article in the Santa Fe New Mexican, that's the daily newspaper, in which her youngest daughter, Susie, had this recollection about her mom. She said, You did not go into her room when she was writing. She wrote in her bedroom, laying in bed, and you had to knock on the door. And if she was busy, you couldn't go in. She would just not answer. I'd like to be able to do that just using the restroom. You can get that if you want. Anyway, (laughs) it's true. Um, But yeah, the mystery of the mom behind the closed door. I love it. Incidentally, Dorothy's sister, Calla, was also a writer. She had moved to Santa Fe in 1929. And I sort of wonder if maybe that's what prompted Dorothy to move there also. I'm not sure. Or maybe it was the other way around. But her sister actually was the society page editor for the New Mexican newspaper under her married name, Calla Hay. And it seems like she was something of a local celebrity. So later, Calla and Dorothy also both moved their families to Los Angeles in the 1940s to write for Hollywood. Okay, yeah, so let's get into that. Um, In 1943, Hughes' novel, The Fallen Sparrow, hit the silver screen. That starred a young Maureen O'Hara. Then in 1947, Universal Studios adapted Hughes' very popular novel, Ride the Pink Horse. It sounds like a funny title, but the pink horse refers to a famous little antique carousel in Taos, New Mexico. Yeah, it's a real carousel that's like a hand-cranked thing that they get out a couple times a year or once a year, I'm not sure, in Taos for a special festival. And also, I should note, I think we should do a mini episode on carousels. Wouldn't that be cool? I love that idea. That would be great. We could dedicate it to our, our kids. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we live kind of close to the one carousel that actually inspired Walt Disney to create Disneyland, right? How amazing is that? Uh, It's beautiful. Um, I love the idea of a carousel inspiring a noir novel, too. There's something a bit eerie about that calliope music, right? Yeah, but actually, I started listening to Ride the Pink Horse on audiobook um, just yesterday. I downloaded it, so I'm about a quarter of the way through. And the pink horse in that book actually factors into it in a sweet, kind of poignant way. It kind of represents innocence in the book. 
Okay, good to know because I'm thinking of the Alfred Hitchcock movie and at the end of it, there's a scene and the carousel is going really, really fast and there's a murder. Um, I'm guessing the carousel probably stands for innocence in that one too, but uh, it's a bit of a darker take on the carousel. <laughs> that's also reminding me of that Willy Wonka boat scene. Oh yeah, <laughs> so like the, the crazy chaotic. <laughs> yep. Uh, anyway, we're getting off on a tangent. Mm-hmm. But while she was living and working in Hollywood, a friend invited Hughes to the set of the Ingrid Bergman movie Spellbound. So Bergman met Hughes, and then she tipped off her pal Humphrey Bogart about her. This led Bogart to buy the film rights to Hughes's 1947 L.A. noir novel In a Lonely Place for his production company Santana Productions, and he also stars in that movie. It's supposed to be both an amazing novel and film. And many critics maintain that this movie, even though it's sort of one of Bogart's lesser known films, is maybe one of his better roles. The story kind of subverts the gender cliches of the noir genre, and we won't say anything else about it to prevent spoilers. No, I will say that I have read both the book, which is excellent, um, and seen the movie more than once. And I actually am surprised it isn't more well-known. I didn't realize that it wasn't, but I think it's because my antenna is tuned toward um, watching any noir film, especially one that stars Humphrey Bogart. But um, the movie and the book are slightly different and they diverge. So I won't go into either of those. As Amy said, it could be a spoiler, but I definitely recommend that you read the book and watch the movie. Also, I saw on Wikipedia that there's even a smithereen song called In a Lonely Place, which quotes dialogue from the film. And I don't know that song, but I'm wondering if the same dialogue was actually in Hughes's original novel. I know that song. Um, and the Smithereens was the first concert I went to. <laughs> oh my gosh. First show. It wasn't even a concert. It was a show in Fresno at a club. Um, and that was also my first mosh pit as well. <laughs> I do know that song, but I just never made the connection because it's been a long time since I've listened to the Smithereens. Anyway, I'll have to go back and check. But anyway, after her spell in Hollywood, Hughes moved back to New Mexico in the early 1960s. And by this time, she'd taken a break from writing crime novels. She said she needed to focus on her ailing mother, and she wanted to help out with caring for her grandchildren. She did, however, still review books for various newspapers. She was a book critic for 40 years, but she wrote one last novel in 1963. It's the book we're discussing today, The Expendable Man, which was reissued in 2012 by New York Review Books. Shall we dive into it? Yes, except there's one other thing I want to mention. Mm -hmm. The Expendable Man, I enjoyed, and we'll get into it, because to me, it didn't feel like that sort of hard-boiled, you know, that kind of macho story. And I was thinking in the last couple days, that term hard-boiled in terms of a genre, like, where did that come from? I don't know where that term came from. And so I decided to look it up. We could almost do a full mini on the origins of the hard-boiled genre and why they use this term. Apparently, Mark Twain is the first person to use the term hard-boiled to refer to somebody's personality, which I didn't know. Mark Twain, he's always coining stuff, right? I had no idea that the first reference was that old. And then it became like a very popular phrase in World War One. I. I think it started to get used for these types of novels because the protagonist is usually hard-boiled and that they're emotionally hard, but they're liable to crack at any moment. There's like a vulnerability to them that they're liable to crack. And so I was like, oh, I didn't really think of it that way, but I liked it. 
Yeah. And I'm sure when you were doing the research, you probably saw this too, but basically the whole idea of why those types of characters and noir gained popularity during the time it did, it was like a post World War One and World War Two kind of thing where it was these soldiers coming back after this kind of crazy experience and having to have this manly demeanor, but underneath they were about to crack, um, yes. which plays into In a Lonely Place. Yeah. And Ride the Pink Horse, the protagonist is definitely that. Yeah. Which surprised me that a woman wrote it. He's very manly, very resentful and bitter. Yeah. I think if her name weren't on the cover, I don't know that you'd know that it was written by a woman. I think you could easily think that it was written by a man. Yeah. Ride the Pink Horse. Absolutely. But I do think The Expendable Man is a little bit different in tone. So yeah, let's jump into it. Um, Walter Mosley actually wrote the afterword to the 2012 reissue. And he said that Dorothy Hughes was among the best and her work belongs in our canon of classic American stories. Bringing her back is no act of nostalgia. It is a gateway through which we might access her particular view of that road between our glittering versions of American life and the darker reality that waits at the end of the ride. Oh boy, what a great description of her work and then also that genre in general. And that's a perfect segue to the setup for this novel, right? The story begins on the road. A young doctor by the name of Hugh Dennismore is alone driving his mother's Cadillac from Los Angeles to Phoenix to attend his niece's wedding. His parents will be meeting up in Phoenix separately. He pulls through a town and a beat up car filled with teenagers crosses his path. Their raucous laughter and screaming leave him unnerved. He stops at a drive-in restaurant for a quick bite. Once he's back on the road, he encounters a hitchhiker in the middle of nowhere. It's a teenage girl. Don't do it, Hugh. Don't you stop to pick her up. It's nothing but trouble. Right. But it's evening now. He's a good guy, and his conscience won't let him leave a stranded young woman by herself in the middle of nowhere. The moment he pulls over, though, a sense of dread, and you might be feeling it while you're listening to this, too, starts to plague Hugh. Amy, do you want to read a passage from this moment? Sure. So this is when the young doctor has just asked the girl, against his better judgment, but wanting to be a good Samaritan, if she wants a ride. This is just a few pages into the novel. Hughes writes, He repeated his question a little impatiently because he didn't like this situation at all. His car stopped here on the road, the girl standing outside looking at him. At any moment, a car from Indio might overtake them or one appear from the eastern crest of the road. A chill sense of apprehension came on him and he wished to hell he hadn't stopped. This could be the initial step in some kind of shakedown. Although how, with nothing or no one in sight for unlimited miles, he couldn't figure. He spoke up more sharply than was his wont. Well, do you want to ride or don't you? I guess so. As if in speaking, she'd made her decision, she'd opened the door and piled in. He set the car in motion again, picking up speed until he hit the 65-mile maximum for this highway. He didn't look at her or say anything more to her. From the periphery of his eye, he saw her set her traveling bag on the floor mat, away from him, close to the door. Her soiled sandal touched it protectively as if it were filled with gold and precious gems. For no particular reason, he was relieved that his suitcases and his medical bag were locked in the trunk of the car. Far ahead on the road, he saw the shape of an oncoming car as it lifted itself over a culvert. He switched on his lights. The sky was still pale, the pale lavender of twilight, but the sand world had darkened. It was difficult enough to drive at this hour. 
The lights would identify the presence of his car to one approaching. When the other car passed his, headed toward Indio, he saw it was yet another jalopy filled with kids. It was hopped up. It zoomed by with only scraps of voices shrilling above the sound of the motor. In his rearview mirror, he watched until it disappeared in the distance. Just for a moment, he had known fear. It might have been the same group which had hectored him in town. The trap might be sprung by his picking up the girl. They might swing about and come after him. Only when the car had disappeared from sight did he relax and immediately feel the fool. It was surprising what old experiences remembered could do to a presumably educated, civilized man. You're already feeling that tension, right? Yeah, I feel like the Coen brothers <laughs> could make this into a really terrifying movie. Um, okay, so Hugh tries to break the ice with his passenger, and we can tell that despite her youth, he's guessing she's around 15. She's bad news. She's unrefined, brash, and a bit bratty. She says her name is Iris Kroom. And if anybody out there listening watches the TV show Ozark, I totally was reminded of the character of Ruth from that show. So manipulative, tricky, a liar. That's who this girl is. Yeah, and Hugh senses this straight away. So his top priority is to send Iris off on her way ASAP. Unfortunately, ridding himself of the girl en route to Phoenix proves difficult. Each time he tries to drop her off in a safe place near a bus terminal or what have you, she manages to turn up again. Yeah, and it starts to get real creepy real fast. She turns up like a bad penny. Mm -hmm. It's like in a horror movie when a character's looking in the mirror and suddenly the reflection of the monster appears in the background. Yeah. <laughs> what started off as a sort of cool dread eventually turns into out-and-out -out panic for Hugh. Iris hasn't really done anything other than be a typically annoying teenager, but Hugh is increasingly unnerved at being in this girl's presence. As the reader, you feel this dread, but at the same time, his panic seems maybe a bit of an overreaction. Yeah, you're kind of like, why is this guy so jumpy, right? What's his story? Why is he so terrified of this teenage girl? Yeah, though we still kind of get it because Hughes does such an amazing job building this slow tension throughout the car ride. Absolutely. And so once they finally make it to Phoenix, Hugh takes, and I'm sorry, we have Hugh, the character, and Hughes, the author, so don't let that confuse you. Um, Hugh, the doctor, takes his leave of Iris, but she manages to track him down at his hotel on his first night in town, you know, again showing up. And she makes this request of him that he flat out refuses. So she leaves in a huff. And at this point, he thinks and hopes he's seen the last of her. You know, finally, I can focus on enjoying the family wedding festivities. And Kim, I really love that Dorothy Hughes sets all the rest of the events of this book in the midst of the niece's wedding and the surrounding social events. Hugh's family is totally clueless that he picked up this hitchhiker coming into town or that he might be in any danger. You know, they're just all ready to celebrate the happy occasion. It's like meet the Fockers over at the family's house, right? <laughs> yeah, the juxtaposition um, is really great. And it just makes that underlying worry that he has even more uh, kind of the dread is there. And it forces Hugh in the midst of all these family events to try to keep his shit together and plaster on a smile, even as the situation continues to devolve over the course of the weekend. Hughes writes, during the reception, he couldn't remain on guard. He had to mingle with family and friends. With his fingers crossed against intrusion, he had to pretend the joy the others were feeling. Grandmother's towering white cake was cut. The toasts lifted. Hugh limited himself to one champagne cup. He would take no chances on a muddlehead tonight. 
as if family events aren't stressful enough. I mean, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, And to me, the wedding stuff, it really sort of puts a unique spin that I think only a female writer can really, Mm -hmm. you know, accomplish with a story like this. It's not just set in the back alleys and seedy bars and dark stairwells, the stuff that I think of from the male noir writers. There's something inherently feminine in the family and the wedding stuff. And I enjoyed all that. And yeah, as you said, it makes an already tense situation a thousand times more difficult for poor Hugh, especially since one of the wedding guests a friend of the bride has captured his fancy and the feeling is very mutual. Love is in the air. Oh yeah. Let's talk about Ellen Hamilton. Yes. Ellen, she and Hugh start off flirting at the rehearsal dinner. And meanwhile, all the family are watching on from the sidelines because they had been hoping that these two would hit it off. Right. But given Hugh's difficulties, which stem from his car ride from Los Angeles, Ellen gets caught up in the trouble too. They actually become a team as they try to figure out a way to get Hugh untangled from this mess that he's in. Yeah. And so again, listeners, there's nothing that we're going to be revealing here that's really a spoiler. But I will say of Ellen, I think she's great, but she was almost too supportive in my eyes when she finds out what a pickle this guy is in. I kept wishing for a moment where she'd at least have this feeling of doubt or say to herself, do I really want to take all this on for a guy I literally just met? It's kind of a lot. Yeah, that's true. But at least Hugh himself is thinking it the whole time. Even if she's not saying it, he knows he shouldn't be saddling her with all this. Yeah. And Dorothy Hughes writes, he was falling in love with her as he'd never known love before, even with full realization of the hopelessness of the situation. Because of a moment of charity on a desert road, he would have to live with the taint of this case forever. That was the cold truth. He could never sully an Ellen Hamilton with its ugliness. And we'll be talking about Ellen more at the tail end of this episode, because I think her willingness to help him makes a lot more sense when viewed within the full context of this book, which, as we said, we aren't going to reveal here. Also, we should mention that the weekend is hot and muggy. That stifling heat also felt really appropriate to a noir novel. The atmosphere is suitably oppressive, I would say. Yeah. And as we stated at the top of the episode, there is a twist to this book. So Hughes powerfully upends the whole story with just a single word. It happens on page 55 of the book, and we're not going to say what that word is. Kim, you had told me there was going to be a twist, but I still didn't see this one coming. Yes, you kept texting me and saying, uh, is this it? Is this it? Uh, No, keep reading. You really just need to keep reading. I wasn't (laughs) going to ruin it for you. I, I refuse to. And needless to say, I think that moment when I finally did read it, in my experience with it anyway, it kind of forced me to acknowledge my own culpability as a reader in some respects. Yeah, um, that was the case with me when I first read it as well. It really uh, makes you think a lot about preconceived notions that end up being entirely wrong. So that's all we'll say about The Expendable Man in this portion of the podcast. Before we move on, though, we should mention that later in her career, in 1978, Dorothy Hughes also wrote a biography of Earl Stanley Gardner, who wrote the Perry Mason detective stories. Hughes also won several other writing awards in her lifetime. In 1951, she received the Edgar Allan Poe Award for criticism. And in 1978, she was honored with the Grand Master Award from the Mystery Writers of America. She passed away in 1993, and her ashes were interred in Santa Fe's Rosario Cemetery. 
I actually want to credit Molly Boyle, a reporter whose 2016 newspaper profile of Hughes in the New Mexican helped fill in some of the blanks for us about her personal life. Um, Her three children are no longer living, but if there's anybody out there who has other insights to share with us about Hughes's life or work, please let us know. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely would want to know more about her. Um, And now I think would be a good time for all of you who have not yet read The Expendable Man to hit stop on this recording, unless you want to have the plot and that special twist we mentioned revealed. So we'll give you a few seconds here to fumble around for your phone and make sure you can sign off. Spoiler alert, about to happen in just a few seconds. (laughs) Fumble, 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 get it turned off if you need to. I feel like we need a little interlude music. Okay, hopefully everyone who wanted to jump off the podcast has done so by now. And to all of you sticking around, I feel like we're in a special secret society. Yeah, we can finally speak freely about this book. I'm like shaking my hands and getting ready because I was having to hold it all in a little bit Mm -hmm. earlier there, right? We can finally reveal what the twist is, but we actually can't say the word that turns this book on its head on page 55. Right, because it's a racial slur. It's the N-word. Those six letters clue us into the fact that this story is more nuanced and more complicated than we had anticipated. Amy... What was your initial reaction when you got to this page and saw that word? It felt like a little tiny electric shock, I have to say. And the first thing I did was think, wait, Hughes Black? Like, huh? Did I miss something? Did I I miss seeing this earlier? I actually flipped back to the beginning of the book to try to figure out, like, did I miss something here that told me that? Because how am I just now learning this? But no, This was the first reference to the young doctor's race, the first reference in the book. And I had just assumed unthinkingly that Hugh was white up until this point. So Hughes plays on all of these stereotypes that would lead us to that default mode. He's a young doctor. He's well-spoken, well-educated. He quotes Longfellow in his car ride with Iris, even. Um, He comes from a well-off family of white-collar professionals. I should not have automatically assumed white guy, but I did. Same here. Um, And I was actually relieved when the same thing happened to you, because while I was waiting for you (laughs) to write me back, I was like, maybe she just figured it out and didn't think it was a big deal the whole time. (laughs) So I was very relieved when I saw that you had made the same assumption that I did. But also I did the same thing. I immediately went back and read through. Uh, And when you go back to the intro of the book, Hughes has left the reader so many signs. The teenagers in that jalopy weren't just being crazy kids. They were screaming racial slurs at him. She just didn't specify it. When he pulls his car into the drive-in to eat, Hughes writes that he waited for one of the serving girls to bring him a menu. Eventually, as he knew eventually it would happen, the less pretty of the young waitresses came to his car and thrust a menu at him. Yeah, so reading that after the fact knowing he's black, you're like, oh, he was purposefully made to sit there and wait. And then when she did bring the menu, she threw it in his face rudely. But the first time around, you don't even think twice about it. You're not reading it that way. Yeah. It's just incredible that this was written decades ago and the inherent bias that would have been in a reader at that time still exists in us today, which is kind of mind-blowing and also really hard and sad. 
100%. I agree. Um, So, and in that passage you read earlier where she moves her bags possessively toward her side of the car, you can now read that in a new light too. Everything suddenly takes on these racist undertones. And it's not helped at all by the fact that once he gets into Phoenix, Hugh has some racist cops eyeing him for Iris's murder. We can say that now too. Iris ends up dead. Mm -hmm. Um, Hugh has to just grit his teeth and try to be as accommodating and civil as he can be once he's suspect number one. Despite their disgusting attitude, he just has to be careful. You know, Mm -hmm. he basically knows that as a black man, he is guilty until proven innocent, not the other way around. And it also explains why he's not so forthcoming when he first finds out that Iris was murdered. Um, We find out her real name was actually Bonnie Bonnie Crum or Bonnie Lee Crum. But when you're reading it the first time, you're thinking, just come clean. Just tell them you gave her a ride. You didn't do anything wrong. It's going to be worse if you don't say anything. But after knowing that he's Black, you understand why he didn't. He needs to consider his options very carefully, knowing that he's going to be judged by an entirely different set of standards and a different brand of justice. Yes. And here's the thing. Ellen knows that too. And we realize that Ellen too is black. And I think that's why she's so willing to believe this guy she just met. She knows how often black men are wrongly accused and made scapegoats. So she is quick to believe in his innocence. He knows that nobody in law enforcement is going to believe him. So he's going to have to uncover his own proof. Although we should say that there is this white lawyer in the book, Sky, who is on Hugh's side. He becomes the third point in a very minor love triangle with Hugh and Ellen as well. And Hugh and Ellen realize they are going to need a white lawyer because only a white man believing in his innocence will help them. They know that if they got a black lawyer, everybody would just be like, well, he's black. Of course, he's going to say you're innocent. Um, So that alone is really a sad commentary as well. Yeah, and once we realize that Hugh is a Black man, Dorothy Hughes doesn't shy away from showing us the subtle and not-so-subtle indignities that both he and Ellen have to face. The hotel staff in the novel are pretty overtly racist, and the couple even talks about whether it's okay to swim in the pool there. Yes, and all these moments are profoundly disturbing, I'd say, to us as a reader, but Ellen and Hugh sort of take it in stride, and I think it's just because they're so used to it. Um, At one point, the racist cop pays Hugh a visit at his grandmother's house, and when he enters the house, he says something like, I've always been curious as to how you folks live, and then when he's leaving, he takes this dramatically big whiff of air as he's exiting the front door and he says fresh air sure smells good he's completely disgusting man Uh, yeah these these moments are incredibly upsetting and very very vivid going back to our own reaction to the beginning of this book and are just assuming that Hugh was a white character it would be interesting I think to find out how black readers or any other minority would respond would they have been roped in as easily as we were? Or do these stereotypes that Hughes employs not fool them as easily? And also, this book kind of made me wonder, what do we think about a white woman of privilege, Hughes, writing this Black man's story in the 1960s? 
Good question. Um, and getting back to the afterword that Walter Mosley wrote for the New York Review Books reissue, he says, a white woman writing of a young Black man's problems with the law was certainly a kind of gamble, but Hughes often chose to write from perspectives far from her own. And he also says, the poison this too little heralded writer uncovers is as lethal as arsenic. Hughes' hero wants to believe in the country Los Angeles represents to him. He wants to believe that his education and his family's hard-won social position will protect him. Right. It's like there are two unique threats running through this novel. There's the immediate danger, which is the killer on the lamb and Hugh needing to prove his innocence. But then there's also this societal threat faced by people of color. I was just as afraid for Hugh each time he had to walk into that police station, frankly, as I was when he was driving down the dark lanes looking for the real killer. You have to kind of credit Hughes for exposing racism in her novel at the time she did. It was gutsy. I completely agree. And it definitely taught both of us a lesson about being a more critical reader going forward and not jumping to conclusions so quickly. That's one of the reasons we put this particular book, you know, her other noir novels are kind of more in the standard vein, but I think she's doing something really different with this one. And I think at the time it probably surprised people and it still to this day, you know, has kept us guessing clearly. Absolutely. Um, and as, you know, white readers reading this with the assumptions we made, I would love to hear from our audience if they have opinions about this book, if they've read it, what their thinking is. Did they lead to the same conclusions? Um, did they not? I'm very curious to hear about other readers' experiences in relation to this book. So if you have something to say, please share it with us. We'd love to hear from you. So that's all for today's episode. If you enjoyed it, be sure to let us know by leaving us a five-star review wherever you listen to this podcast. We'll be back next week with another mini episode, and we've got plenty more amazing guests lined up for the next few months to talk about women authors you've likely never read before. Bye, everyone. Our theme song was written and performed by Jenny Malone, and our logo was designed by Harriet Grant. Lost Ladies of Lit is produced by Kim Askew and Amy Helms.